This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. Here we are at the finale of our series that we've called Your Liturgical Bible, our finale. Father Jeffrey, it's been a long journey. We started with all those pillars of understanding what the Bible actually is, and then we turned to little themes in the Bible, things like mountains, right? And we looked at how mountains were used narratively and described and what their role was in the narrative story. And then we looked at when Christ comes, how do mountains play in his ministry? And then we looked at the church and how the church understands mountains and its liturgical worship. So we're basically trying to connect. One thing we've been trying to do is connecting what's written down in the Bible with what we're actually doing through ritual. And I guess that's sort of an assumption. Not Yeah, it's kind of an assumption that we've made that you can't really have a proper understanding of the Bible without actually having proper liturgy to express it through ritual and through community. And I'm wondering if we could talk a bit more about that. Like why, why is it that you need to have that proper liturgical communal expression of the Bible for it to come alive? Maybe we'll start there, Father Jeffrey. Yeah, well, this takes us back in a way to, you know, some of those key pillars that we spoke about at the very beginning about the Bible being communal literature, about it being liturgical and and so forth. I, I mean, the thing about being in the Orthodox Church is you're in an organism, an organization, a family, a, a covenant community that remembers when there wasn't a Bible, right? And I, that's maybe a weird thing to say um, because the Bible has always been there, surely, right? But you know, it's not that long ago before, in practical terms, nobody owned one, right? I mean, this the printing press comes along 14th, 15th century, and suddenly there's an explosion in the availability of of something called, you know, books that people can own. And before that, you just had manuscripts. And, you know, it was a rare church indeed that would have had a whole copy of you know, every scroll that was needed to, to kind of put together something that we would today call the Bible. And so, you know, even if you don't go right back to before these things were written, and yes, the community pre-existed that, but just within the kind of living memory of the liturgy of the church, the liturgy pre seeds having Bibles in churches, right? We All, all the a church would have had would have been a small collection of, of bits and pieces of what today we have a, a, as Bibles. So in that regard, the, the principal thing is that community that gathers in worship and tells stories, that remembers and reads from these texts and interprets them together. The, the fact that today in many of our homes, there's probably not just one, but half a dozen different Bibles. And we kind of view it as a thing that we take off the shelf and we read it and we try to understand it. This is a very new thing in, in church history, right? It's just not the way people heard the stories, interpreted the stories, shared the stories, you know, with, with one another. And, and what we have embedded in orthodoxy in our liturgy is indeed the, the, a framework for understanding, for interpreting, for living the truths of the biblical narrative that that comes from way before you know any of that kind of modern temptation to just sort of 
treat it like a book on your shelf that needs individual reading and interpretation and so forth. So, you know, once you get yourself into that mindset, it becomes a lot clearer what's going on in our liturgy, right? And the way that even the all the services are set out, the way all the scriptures in a way are kind of being retold, rewritten, uh, reordered, placed in relationship with, with one another, um, things that we call books of the old covenant and and books of the new covenant put into dynamic relationship with, with one another, not even simply as a, this came before and this came after, or this was the, you know, the foreshadowing and this was the fulfillment. In our liturgy, there's this kind of dynamic almost, you know, quantum physics, postmodern use of time and space where characters and events and narrative elements are all put in this kind of dynamic relationship moving backwards and forwards, right? That's just this, you know, the, the hymnographers that put together our services had, had a lot of fun, right? Just kind of mining and and delving into the collection of, of the scriptures in order to bring forward the eternal truths about God, our relationship with him, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, with salvation history. And to be placed in that kind of matrix, in that in that place is to to be given an opportunity to really develop a full human life and relationship with God, right? So this this is the proper way in orthodox terms that that the scriptures are are lived, are entered into, are interpreted, are finally put into practice, you know, in, in our own lives. And you see this just in every service. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, I'm talking about a particular feast or I'm talking about Holy Week and Pascha, you know, because of course that's at the heart of the church year. But I mean, every service does this. Even the, the, the little hours with just the use of psalmody do this, right? But, and then certainly the, the hymns on, on feasts and on Sundays. And, and, and all throughout the church here, it's this constant backwards and forwards of a dynamic relationship that we as the living community entering into this worship are placed in this, this context of all of the events and people and as we've talked about in the series, the narrative elements that are embedded in, in the scriptural story. And it, it just it's this fertile ground for, for growth, for 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 living and expressing who we are as human beings in relationship with God. It's, it, it's just a completely different thing from just saying, okay, how are we going to set about interpreting a book or reading a book or, or whatever? It's just, it's a much, much more exciting project. And I hope through this series, some of that has been conveyed and the potentiality of all of that has been conveyed to our listeners. One of the examples liturgically that comes to mind when, when you were talking about all of this, the bringing together of this biblical narrative with our, our community and prayer and, and worship is, um, is the, the fourth ode that you're most of the fourth ode of the Paschal Canon when it talks about uh, the prophet Habakkuk and you, you know, the actual book of prophecy of Habakkuk kind of ends open ended. It ends with this prophet named Habakkuk looking and seeing these armies coming towards Jerusalem and things are going to go really bad. But he says, but even though things are going to be really bad, I'm going to remain faithful because I know one day there will be this restoration. But he doesn't actually see it. In, in The book doesn't end with the restoration. But then, you know, on the, in, at the Paschal Vigil, we get together and we sing, you know, the inspired prophet Habakkuk now stands with us in Holy Vigil 
He's like a shining angel who cries with a piercing voice. Today, salvation has come to the world for Christ is risen as all powerful. And it's this, um, the, the, what we are doing in our worship is actually the end of his book of prophecy, right? It's it's this completion that we, we, we are writers of that story as well, or we are participants in the writing of that story as well. And, uh, it's quite, I, 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 we, it's very difficult to be able to like get that kind of experience without liturgical worship. You know, it's, it's no, hard right. to go ahead. Yeah. The best thing you could do is maybe read Habakkuk and think, oh, in some distant sense, you know, everything that he's talking about here, you know, the, the answer to that will be centuries later, right? With the coming of the Messiah. And and as I say, I mean, this is a kind of typical thing that, you know, Christians have always done. I mean, even the creation of the the book of the Bible, the codex, as opposed to different scrolls, was so that you could flip backwards and forwards and see, you know, this came before and this came afterwards. But but in liturgy, it's it's much more hypertext. <laughs> you know, it's backwards and forwards. And as you say, Habakkuk is not just in that sense, you know, something that, that someone who comes centuries before has this experience that, that, that foreshadows, you know, the, the, the triumph over, you know, the, the, the invading armies of Hades and so forth that, that we see in the, uh, in, in the, the passion, death and resurrection of, of Christ. I mean, it, it is that, but when Habakkuk shows up at the resurrection to proclaim it, right? Or there's another, one of my favorite moments on Holy Saturday, you know, where of course we, we read the whole of the, the book of, uh, of Jonah, right? But you got, in, in some of the hymns, Jonah himself, having been cast out of the belly of the whale, coming kind of his own resurrection experience on the third day and so forth, shows up at the tomb of Christ and tells the guards <laughs> about the resurrection, right? And you sort of think, whoa, what's going on here, right? Like it's, it's this, like this crunching of time and space into these kind of you know, singularities, <laughs> you know, as I say, it has this, this, this kind of co- uh, notion of, of the modern or sort of postmodern not t- uh, aspect of space and time, right? That space and time are, are, are dimensions. They all part of one continuum. And all of these moments can kind of come together in liturgy is this kind of eternal present in which every character shows up. This is something that's already there in the New Testament. You think about the transfiguration. You mentioned mountains as in the introduction as one of the examples of the narrative elements that, that we talked about in this series. And we talked about the Mount of, of Transfiguration. But who shows up there? Moses and Elijah, right? You know, and, and it's not just, well, you know, this is some kind of symbolic thing. And of course, it works on, on that level. But in some sense, space and time crunch together and you have this eternal present. And that's that moment of being on the Mount of Transfiguration is the moment of being in liturgy when all of these, you know, figures are there. We don't just mean it in some sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, emotional, you know, wouldn't it be nice if all the angels and all the saints of all the ages were present in our liturgy? We mean that seriously, that at every liturgy, all of space and time comes together in a, in a kind of eternal present in which God acts and we respond with thanksgiving and sacrifice and praise and all of the the characters, all of the narrative elements of the scriptural tradition are present, you know, in, in that moment, it's this eternal now. It's why every liturgy is, you know, every festal commemoration is today. This happens. 
Right. This moment, this now, it reminds me too of, you know, Joshua telling, you know, the, the people of Israel, you know, this is some 40 years after they've left or even longer, uh, you know, from the Exodus. And it was the, in that experience, it was so that a couple of generations would die off, right? Because the people's rebelliousness and their, and their disobedience towards God. Well, but when he addresses them, he tells them, you saw the Lord act on that day of Exodus, on that day of deliverance. You saw the seas go back. You saw the Egyptians, you know, routed and drowned and so forth. Well, and that's always going to be true. It's us. It's, it's we, because we're present, you know, in, in these moments. And as I said, the way that the liturgy brings these characters and events and, and narrative elements together from across space and time into this eternal present it is the way that we interpret the scriptures. It's the way that we understand how they all fit together and how ultimately in and through the incarnation and the incarnate person of, of Jesus Christ, that all of this is, is at its fulfillment. It's in participating in his life that we are the ones who bring all of that story to its conclusion in the final purposes of God. And I don't think that humans can help but do stuff like this. When I look at things like Comic-Con, where people have these stories that they experience, all they want to do is put on and embody that story and then enter into community with each other, acting out that story. Or you look at Harry Potter world at, at one of these Disney parks where it's just... um it's the embodiment of that story. It's the incarnation of that story. And you get that in sports and other things as well. I think it's probably most palpably felt in things like Comic-Con or people who dress up in these uh, costumes and things like that. You know, I think it's just something that's completely natural in our human um, psyche to want to enact these stories. But what we would say that's different from, say, people who are dressing up as Spider-Man is that, you know, the story that we find in the scripture, the scriptural narrative, the scriptural theology is the truth, right? It is the, the, the deepest pattern of all reality and are expressing that in community through ritual and worship um, helps orient us towards that true story, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful example uh, on several levels. I mean, my, my first inclination was to say something like, well, hang on a minute, this is a little bit different because these are people who maybe are dressing up, say, as characters from a certain comic universe or whatever, and, and all they're wanting to do is just kind of mimic what's already there. But actually, that's not the truth, isn't it? I mean, the, there's whole fan universes and extended universes and, and fan fiction. And I think by entering into say a particular world that has been created by an author or a series of comic, you know, book writers or, or whatever, or, or film, you know, makers, uh, I mean, maybe it starts as, okay, we're going to, we're going to do that thing that we saw in the film or the thing we saw in that, you know, episode of a, of a comic book or whatever, but we're going to build on it. We're going to extend on it. We're going to live in and through that to something else, towards something else, right? Is this a kind of fan extension of the thing? And that's ultimately what liturgy is, is about for us, right? It's not about, you know, we've celebrated a particular feast because all we want to do is, you know, recall all the aspects of it and all the things God has done for us. And of course, 
we do that absolutely but the point is that it transforms us that that we are then set on a path of growth and development towards our own goal the goal that god has for us which is to share fully in that divine life right so that ultimately you know this is kind of frightening image that um Walter Brueggemann, who's a very famous uh, scriptural, you know, scholar, uh, you know, a lot of people who've done theological studies will have bumped into Brueggemann at some point or another. He's done a particularly fine work on the Psalms and things like that. But but he has this, I say, quite frightening image that that sounds a little bit, you know, like a like an insult in a way to begin with, or, or putting the scriptures down. But he says the scriptures are like compost. <laughs> um, and by that, he doesn't mean, you know, the thing that you discard, right? But rather the, that place where things grow, right? And, and ultimately, his point by, by using this image is to say that they're not to draw attention only to themselves, but rather be a place of, of real fertility where, uh, you know, we plant ourselves and where, where new growth comes, whether that be flowers or vegetables or, or, or whatever, that, 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 that the, the, the scriptures provide the nutrients, the, the, the soil bed, the framework, the, the structure for our own growth, for our own development. And we return again and again, you know, to that. So the, the point is not to draw attention always and ever only to the, the scriptural stories themselves, but to our own participation in them, to our own living them out, to our own growth and development towards the fullness of the, the age to come that God calls us to. So we've used the term narrative theology or narrative and scriptural story. And these are kind of the terms that we've been using to describe this approach to the scriptures. And I'm wondering if we can pick apart a little bit of, of that phrase, narrative theology. We've heard terms like, systematic theology or liturgical theology um but narrative theology you know seems to has it come into vogue like recently what what's the why are we why is this the phrase that we're using father jeffrey for this sort of series this narrative theology well it's it is a response to what has kind of taken over christianity and a lot of you know faith traditions over the last I mean, probably want to say three, four hundred years now, but certainly the last couple hundred years, um, under the influence of the Enlightenment and what we could broadly call modernity, the the focus shifted onto kind of rational belief, right? So faith, if you were to you know describe this over the last few hundred years, if a Christian were asked, what's faith? Well, faith is, here's all the things I believe. And you make a list, right? You make creeds, you make confessions of faith. And they got longer and longer and longer. They got more, you know, problematic and controversial and like every denomination is is established on on a new you know confession of faith and how they differ from from the other ones around them. In fact the the rise of modernity the rise of rational belief in this sense coincides perfectly with the rise of what you call denominationalism right confessional you know christianity and and so forth it's not to say that that earlier christianity wasn't concerned at all with what people believed but but only in a very limited sense right and we've talked about this before in other podcasts that the church fathers resisted developing doctrine 
you know, it was kind of the last resort. If somebody came along and contradicted what the community was experiencing, then and only then were they pushed into coming together in council, you know, looking at what that person was teaching and then rejecting it, right? So uh, as Orthodox, we have very few actually what you might call discursive rationalistic beliefs, right? And they're all there in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, right? To exclude various kinds of heresies. But the point is not to define or, you know, give rational content to, to our beliefs. Faith ultimately in the pre-modern era was about trust, about love, about relationship, right? And, and yes, the, the brain is involved. So there is some element of we have to, to think correctly, but that's secondary to having a real relationship. And a real relationship exists through space and time and is lived out through stories, through narrative and everything. So the reason the Bible and the whole collection of, of literature that we brought together as the Bible is principally narrative and stories is that that's the best way of, of kind of giving some kind of content and pointers towards relationship as opposed to let i mean if, if you were to meet somebody and decide we're going to be friends um uh, you know you're not going to kind of pull out a contract and say here's our friendship agreement i know sheldon does this <laughs> you know on big bang theory mm-hmm, if anybody mm-hmm. knows what i'm talking about but i mean the whole reason that's hilarious is that that's just not how you do relationships right it's just not how things are defined so it, the, the the bible is based around a fundamental relationship called covenant it has various iterations. It's about God's relationship with human beings, about our relationship and response, you know, with him. And that can't be set out in in terms that are just contractual, just, you know, rationalistic beliefs and, and so forth. So to turn back to the question, what is narrative theology? Narrative theology today is a return, a retrieval of the pre-modern sense that the fundamental thing involved in faith is is trust and love and relationship not what you believe with your brain right so we're not like sticks with you know like a lollipop you know just brains on on you know who don't have bodies and hearts and 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 whole whole selves right as as the modern kind of era imagined so what you might say is a kind of postmodern or critique of the modern or post-critical move is this move towards retrieving what what the early church um, and you know the whole patristic tradition orthodox tradition you know reflects in terms of a much more narrative based you know theology and as i said you know as we've been exploring in this podcast that's principally experienced in liturgy right so the way that um the Orthodox hymnographers and liturgical, you know, architects put together all of the worship of the church, which is the primary way we experience the scriptures, the primary way we experience our faith, express our faith and experience our relationship with God is precisely narrative, you know, theology. And it's, it, it's, it's really interesting today to hear some of the principal exponents of you know, what is called narrative theology, also called post-critical or even post-liberal, you know, liberal as in that sense of, you know, modernity, um, you know, theology. And they just sound like they're orthodox, right? They sound like they're, they're talking about what we've always known in, in the orthodox church through our, our liturgy and our, our approach to scriptures and so forth. So it's quite an exciting coming together. So if modernity was about breaking things apart and, you know, compartmentalizing them, fragmenting them, individualizing them because of rational beliefs that are contested one against the other, then the opportunity we have in a kind of 
post-modern, post-liberal, post-critical environment in this retrieval of the pre-modern is for things to come back together, right? Which is the whole point. And we talked earlier about how Jonah shows up at the resurrection or how Habakkuk shows up to proclaim it and things like that. Well, that's a coming together in a really beautiful way. Well, we can do that maybe, you know, right across the board with if people can actually enter again into this much more narrative theology or storied relationship way of understanding, you know, you know, the faith. So does that make sense as an answer to the, yeah. Um, The, the one, one of the big questions that I had for today's episode was the relationship between Bible study in terms of Bible study, small, small group gets together, they read some of the scriptures and they talk about it versus liturgy, right? So like, what's the, we've been talking a lot about experiencing the scriptures liturgically and how that's sort of maybe a, a way of bringing together the story in a really strong, powerful way. But what's the role for Orthodox Christians specifically when it comes to Bible study? Because there are lots of Orthodox who are very skittish, right? Very nervous about the idea of people getting together for Bible study. It should be like, no, go to the liturgy and that's enough. But what, from your perspective, is the role or should be the role of Bible study in the life of an Orthodox Christian? In a way, I think we've modeled it here through this series, right? So um, just to toot our own horn briefly here. um, I like that. Yeah. What we've done, I think, is a bit of Bible study, right? Over the last so many episodes. Um, Now, there's just been two of us with a bunch of other people overhearing it, but we could imagine something along these same lines happening, you know, with, with Orthodox Christians who, who gather together. But the point of it is not to ask, what can we learn anew about, you know, the Bible itself, its history, its, its, its context, uh, you know, how, how can we focus more on these stories and learn more about them? Of course, that all happens. That's part of the process. But that, in Walter Brueggemann terms, is just to pay attention to the compost, <laughs> right? Um, which isn't very exciting. You know, very few people, you know, start gardening and, um, you know, say to their friends, come, I want you to see the soil <laughs> that I have. Not right? Not like, might do that, but... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> now, th- now, if you're... I mean, there's a level at which that does still make sense, right? Like, look, I've I've developed this rich, loamy soil, and I, you know, I'm really proud of this. Now, look what I'm going to go and do with always the point, right? Look at the flowers that come out of this. Look at the plants, the vegetation, the mm-hmm. the, the fruit and vegetables, and, and all the things I can grow in this. And I think that's where Orthodox will want to put the emphasis. So if, if it's a bunch of brains sitting around a table, right, rational minds, the lollipop idea of humans, we're just here to feed your your brain with more information i think we kind of almost instinctively realize there's not a lot of point in that i mean yeah you can do better at the next pub quiz because you know you'll know a little bit more about the minor prophets or, or whatever i mean there must be some interesting pub yeah. quizzes out there that do quiz? I'd, I'd love to go to that one <laughs> but it's not that it's about you know you're going to be a better human being because you know in worship you will be formed all the more strongly because you it's starting to make a little bit more sense so hopefully by you know understanding things like trees and 
dangerous and healing waters and mountains and temples and kings and so forth. And as all these images play with each other in, in the narrative context of liturgy, it's all the more connected to your own life, to your own, uh, your own story. Cause that's what we do. We arrive in liturgy with our own layers of stories that we participate in. And we want those to connect with that rich soil of the scriptural story so that we can indeed grow in it and be formed by it. And I think that's the orthodox instinct here is to say, it can't just be about feeding information to people, right? It's not about opening books and understanding this historical critical method of, of, you know, unpacking, you know, what is going on here. It's about as the church and before that, that the church of Israel was always doing with this, which is living in it, growing in it, growing towards the purposes of the, of the kingdom of God, which in Orthodox terms we call theosis, this, this becoming like God, right? And that's the point. So I, absolutely, I think there's a, there's a place for small group studies, for, for, for teaching sessions. I mean, we, we make room in the liturgy itself for a homily, which to some extent has a teaching dimension to it, but should never just be about, let me tell you some information so that you can go away, you know, a little bit more intelligent about, you know, what, what's going on here. That's obviously involved. We're, we're to love God with our, our bodies, our souls, our hearts, but also our minds, right? So it, it's involved in, in being human, but it's not the be all and end all. It's not just about providing more information for us to, to, to understand things by. It's, it's, as I said, it's this compost, this rich nutrient soil, this framework and foundation for our own spiritual growth. And I think if we gather together in groups outside of liturgy, in order to support what goes on in our worship as we explore this this crunching of space and time where all of God's uh, saving acts come together in us, in our community, well, then those groups can be helpful. You know, so Bible study, yes, let's make it a thing again, but but in this particular way. It seems to me that the liturgy, the way that it deploys the Bible is just simply an act of narrative genius, maybe narrative inspiration, that real inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the way that these stories talk to each other, the way that they complement or, or sometimes even juxtapose with each other is extremely powerful. You know, the, the we talked about it at the beginning of this episode, but the where these different, you would never, p- part of the way that you can draw out meaning is by putting these different stories together in a, in a, in a context which make you contemplate them in a certain way, right? Um, for example, Matins begins with six psalms, which are quite dark in tone, but then we move into the Lord as God has revealed himself to us, right? Which is you get these different parts of the scriptures being thrown together to create or to draw out um, the meaning from them. It's like the liturgy is itself a tool of interpretation and a tool of integration into our own hearts. I mean, as you say that, it occurs to me that, I mean, you know, where, where's the inspiration happening, right? I mean, that's, that's always the big question because, you know, in certain parts of modern Christianity, um, almost as a, as a security and defensive measure, you know, certain Christians have wanted to locate that in the text, 
right? That the inspiration, God inspired people and they wrote down and, and therefore, you know, the, 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 the text itself is the infallible thing, is the inerrant thing. And, and we, we look to the text to solve all, all problems. And, and it's clearly not the case. I mean, there's this beautiful um, expression, you know, that it comes out of this post-critical uh, narrative theological retrieval of the pre-modern and where someone said, God lets his children tell the story, right? And that means it's not always straightforward and it can be messy. It can be contradictory. It's full of tension. It's full of paradox. It's full of rewriting. You know, you get whole bits of the Bible that get rewritten within the Bible and tell things from a different perspective. And, and all those perspectives are, are, are detectable. And it's not just because we've done historical critical information gathering about it. it, it it's detectable in the round of, of liturgy itself. And liturgy, when the hymnographers went and, and kind of pulled all this together, they retain that, right? The, you can't just sort of systematize the thing. The story is not capable of being reduced to propositions. And that's really interesting. It means that the inspiration... You know, is throughout, but also shifts and shifts towards us, right? So you could say that, you know, the later ones who heard the original oral stories and, and wrote them down are inspired. The, the people who come and rewrite it and redact it and, and commit it into a, some sort of canonical shape, they were inspired. The litur liturgical hymnographers who pull these things together into the shape we experience them in, they were inspired and have been inspired through, through the centuries. But the inspiration doesn't end there. It, it continues with us in our place, in our community, in our worship. And we're asked, because this thing about God trusting his children to tell the story, God also trusts his children to hear the story and to enact the story, right? And so the inspiration continues with us. We who are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, are therefore inspired to interpret, to, to understand, to put things into new kind of perspectives and shapes and so forth. It's a living tradition of the church because the life of the Holy Spirit continues, you know, within it. And, and it's, it's always a work that needs to be done. So the, the, this idea of liturgy as a place where we come and we have to kind of muck in together to get someplace to, to develop, to grow, to travel towards an end, you know, that continues with us. We're not, we're not just simply the, the passive recipients of what has previously been inspired or determined or, or set down, that that work continues. The same way when we look at an icon, we're invited through its inverse perspective and its rhetoric and all of its presentation of visual elements and so forth, we're invited to, to, to be in an interpretive relationship, right? And so all of liturgy does that with the scriptures too, that, that together as a community, we have to continue the work, continue the work of the Holy Spirit and continue to collaborate with him through space and time. And that to me is the most exciting part about the Bible and Orthodoxy. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. And I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.